welcome to another live edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am your host, Jake Novak, and you can follow me on Twitter if this show is not enough for you. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JakeJakeNY, the at symbol JakeJakeNY. I'm also on Facebook. Just look me up, Jake Novak. You'll find me pretty easily there. And a lot to get to again on this show today. Uh, a lot of things happening. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the second season of Fauda, which uh, was released on Netflix at the beginning of May. So I'm going to give myself a pass now. You've had two months to see it. I will avoid the spoilers as much as I possibly can, and I think I'll be successful at it. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to hear anything at all, anything at all about Fauda, watch it really quickly. I promise you I will not ruin it for you. Uh, but it has been a couple of months. I'm also going to talk about you know, an important lesson that I think the Jewish community, especially in the United States, but all of us really need to learn uh, when we compare two important stories. But I want to start with uh, ask you all a question. Did all of you either go or watch that follow that big protest this weekend? You know which protest I'm talking about? No, no, I'm not talking about the big anti-Trump administration, anti-Trump, anti-immigration protests this weekend. I'm not talking about those. Uh, I don't think they were all that important for a number of reasons. Uh, and frankly, the media coverage of it seemed to prove me right about that. There was coverage of it. It wasn't like it wasn't covered, and it was a big story for a little while. But in general, there was not a lot of enthusiasm about it, because I think that issue kind of is hit a crescendo already. Now, the big protests I'm talking about, folks, the one you really needed to be following and know is what's going on in several cities in Iran. You've heard me talking about these protests, and you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, I thought this was a live edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. What's going on here? Uh, it is a live edition of the Nachum Siegel, <laughs> of the Novak Now show on Nachum Siegel Network, because those protests have never ended. But what happened this weekend is very, very important. The protests really, really turned violent, and it wasn't the protesters who made it violent. Iranian security forces in at least one of the cities shot four people, four of the protesters who were peacefully protesting. And there were other scuffles with the security forces that really started to get more violent. And the reason is very, very simple. Not only are we talking about a regime that's been in control of Iran for almost 40 years now, which is repressive. You know, Iran was one of the most modern countries in all of the Middle East by far. Uh, they had a sometimes brutal mostly just corrupt dictator in the Shah of Iran going up until 1978, of those of you who remember. So I'm not saying it was some kind of utopian democracy and free country, but women had rights, more rights there than anywhere else in the Muslim world, pretty much. They had a lot of things going for them. Of course, they had oil money coming in. But the corruption of the Shah allowed Islamic fanatics to take over the country, as many of you know. So I'm giving you a quick history lesson, but 40 years of this has been too much. And it's really starting to overflow. And, and like all ideological theocratic regimes, the day-to-day -day workings of day-to-day -day necessities of life get, get ignored because they're too busy fighting some kind of a holy war, and literally in this case, a holy war. And Iran has started and escalated holy wars all over the world. You know, not, not, in, not wars of defense, but wars, holy wars that they've started to try to improve their, 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 their reputation. It's amazing. You, you improve your reputation in the Islamist world by starting wars. Unbelievable. But that's what they've done. Right now, they're fighting about five or six at a time, the three biggest ones being the war in Syria, that's where they're backing Hezbollah, and backing the regime of, of Bashar Assad. They're also now basically the primary supporters of Hamas, so they're fighting a war against Israel. And of course, they're also backing the Houthi rebels in Yemen. 
you know, and that's all they, and that's what they do just before breakfast, not to mention what they do within their own country. So what's happened, the economy in that country, despite the rising price of oil, despite the sanctions being lifted when President Obama made the Iran deal, they just don't have enough money because they're throwing it out the window to these foreign wars. And they're not even, they're, they're foreign provocations. I mean, it's one thing to fight a foreign war when you're doing it maybe to protect your country, but Iran's just trying to prove that Shia Muslims are more Muslim. I mean, Lahavdil, compare it to, you know, Jewish people who try to prove they're frummer than somebody else. When they do that, they, that usually means they get a blacker hat or maybe they grow a longer beard. In Iran, it means they blow up some more innocent people. I'm sorry, it's just the way it goes. The Iranian regime. So what's happened is that their basic economic necessities have, 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 have gone away. And now they've reached the point where one of the most important economic necessities, one of the most important things you need to have a civil and, and, and safe and peaceful society is going away, and that is potable, drinkable water. Now, you don't have to believe me to understand how important drinkable water is. For those of you who know your Bible and know your Chumash, you know the whole point of getting wells and getting fresh water is right there in the first few books of the, of the Torah. I mean, come on, folks. This is, this is basic life. You can't survive without water anywhere, especially in that kind of a climate. You need a little more, right? So what's happened is now you've had major cities in Iran where there has been nothing coming out of the tap that's drinkable, maybe nothing at all, for weeks now. And that's going to turn even the most loyal, frightened Iranian citizen in those towns into an angry person. And if they're already a little bit angry and already a little fed up, they're going to take to the streets. And that's what they've been doing. And so now Iran needs to do something. What are they going to do? Now, the other big protest this weekend was not only in Iran, but connected to the Iranian situation. You had 100,000 people coming out into the streets in Paris to protest the Iranian regime and to demand a free Iran. 100,000 people. It's a very big thing. They do this every year in Paris because the real power center of the Iranian exiled regime, the former allies of the Shah, hopefully less corrupt than he was, but allies, relatives, the whole thing. They either live, they live basically in two places. They live in Paris and they live in Beverly Hills, California. The son of the Shah, who a lot of Iranians want to put back into the, uh, the, you know, the throne, for, for lack of a better word, into Iran, lives in Beverly Hills most of the time. Because just by accident, as a 17-year-old boy, he happened to be getting free training at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs when his father was overthrown. And they were smart enough not to bring him home or take him out of the United States. And he's been here ever since. Anyway, anyway, 100,000 people came out to the streets of Paris. And now we have some breaking news on this, again, live edition of Novak Now here in the Nelson City. We have some breaking news. Belgian police are now reporting that they thwarted a serious terrorist attack on that 100,000-person march in Paris. So the Iranian terror, Iranian-backed terrorists, according to the Belgian police, tried to attack and kill as many of those 100,000 people at that protest as they possibly could. So we see what the Iranian regime is doing now. Now, they, now they clearly have to do something, and that's a very important point I want to make. They have to do something right now. The country's running out of water. They're facing new sanctions. People are, are basically kind of getting rioting, riotous in the streets of Iran now. I mean, not, they're not starting out rioting, but once you kill some of the protesters, then you have a riot. So the Iranians, of course, bringing that on themselves in more ways than one. And you got 100,000 people in Paris. So what, what are they doing? What are they doing? They have to do something. Because again, under the Obama administration and the rest of Europe's appeasement policy, the Iranian regime didn't have to do anything. They were getting more money. They could have used that money to improve their local economy, which they didn't do, but they didn't have to do anything. In other words, they didn't have to respond or scramble, but now they have to scramble. 
So initially, what are they doing? They're going back to their old playbook, which is they're going after more terror. They're trying to blow up the terrorists. They're shooting their own people, the, the protesters. They're trying to blow up the protesters in Paris. They're shooting their own people. The same old stuff. They've got to do go back to their old playbook, which is what they're doing. And, you know, listen, they may never change from that playbook. But if they don't change from that playbook, we're talking about a potential violent revolution within Iran that could happen. You know, remember something very interesting. The Shah was so corrupt. And the Islamists seemed to be so relatively peaceful at the time. Remember, this was 1978, 1979, before so many more years of organized terror had really taken hold. The Iranian people were kind of, a lot of Iranian people were fooled by the Ayatollah Khomeini and his followers. There were a lot of students. They thought, oh, these nice little students will take over and we'll have a more. And they were also feeling a little guilty about not being as religiously Muslim as they had been in the past, their, their, their ancestors. So the one good thing that happened from that is that there was not a violent, terrible revolution in Iran. I mean, when, when the Ayatollah took over, it was peaceful. Now, we would like to see that happen again. We would like to see a better and more democratic and decent regime take over without a lot of blood in the streets. But if the Iranian regime, if the, if the mullahs and Ayatollah Khamenei, the successor to Khomeini, if they insist on continuing on this path, following the killing, following up on the killing, following up on the more invasions, the whole violence, then they will have a violent situation in Iran, and then the United States and the rest of the world will have to make a decision. It'd be great if we didn't have to make such a decision very quickly and a peaceful overturn of power happens, but we'll see what happens there. But folks, that's the big protest you should have been watching this weekend. That's the thing you should have been following. And why was it hard for you to do that? Well, it wasn't covered by the mainstream media in this country, as per usual. They do not follow stuff that, A, they don't know that much about, although they should know more about this. They've also become one issue oriented. You can turn on any one of the cable news networks now and for an hour they'll do one story and only one story, which is the opposite of what everyone's taught in school, in journalism school and stuff like that. But they've moved away from that. And so you didn't follow that. But, you know, luckily you have Twitter, you have social media. And I know, I know a lot of the stuff that comes out on Twitter and social media is not reliable. But you need to find your reliable sources, do a little bit of legwork. It doesn't take too long to find out who's legit and who isn't. And like I said to you in previous editions of this program, I have sources that I trust coming out of Iran. And I got that news very easily on social media. Didn't take me any time. Didn't cost me any money, really, other than paying my, my cell phone bill. And I just urge you to find more of these sources. And I'll talk a little bit more about news media stuff later. But that was the big protest this weekend. I, I, I really hope that you followed it. I really hope that you continue to follow it. This is very, very interesting. Um, and again, it just goes to show that the policy of turning the screws on the regime of Iran is the right thing to do. And by the way, this isn't the first time the people of Iran have taken to the streets in somewhat recent years. You know, in 2009, there was a very popular pro-democracy uprising in Iran. By uprising, I mean just peaceful protests in the street, but it was very widespread. And the new Obama administration completely ignored it, and now we know why. They were already in negotiations with the Iranian regime for a nuclear deal that they felt would really improve their prestige. So it was more important for them to start this process of signing a piece of paper about a nuclear deal than to support pro-democracy peaceful protesters in Iran in 2009. And what a, what a disgrace that was. Well, here we are nine years later, and the Iranian people are rising up much more forcibly now and much more uh, a sustained thing. And I think a big part of it is, you know, they're, they're seeing that there's a chance to influence the world again on this, at least the influence of the United States. Obama was kind of a lost cause. Now, don't make the mistake of saying, oh, because President Trump ended the Iran deal or said X, Y, and Z, this uprising began. That's not what happened. What has happened is the uprising has begun. The uprising began in December of 2017, re restarted then, really continued to pick up steam, and now it's really picking up steam. And what President Trump has done has resp responded properly to it. 
That's all you can hope for. We're not looking to instigate wars or revolutions in foreign countries, but we're looking to respond to better choices the right way. The Obama and the European way was the wrong way. It propped up a regime. I mean, imagine you're, you're protesting a regime that's been repressive, that's been killing its own people, and the people who you really admire elsewhere in the world, whether it's in Europe or the United States, are helping the killers, are helping the evil regime. Imagine how disheartening that is. So to give these people a shot in the arm, at the very least, we have to do what we're doing. President Trump is doing, promising more sanctions getting out of the Iran deal. And then I love what, Pres what Prime Minister Netanyahu is doing, putting out these videos directly to the Iranian people, showing his support for them, telling them they have something to be proud of, telling them that Israel will help them, giving them uh, the free Israeli water technology and a Farsi website online, all stuff like that, which is so important. So that's the, that's the movement I want you to watch, folks. Don't, don't pay attention to these generated media outrages. This is a real outrage. I mean, imagine not having water, millions of people in your own country and then being shot on the street for protesting it. So I want you to, to pay attention to that one if you can. So I want, I want to switch gears though and, and, and talk about what we do for fun, which is we watch intense counterterrorism television shows. <laughs> that's, that's fun in our house and fun in a lot of people's houses. And of course, I'm talking about the Netflix program Fauda, uh, which uh, has completed its second season. Uh, that second season was released on Netflix and I think on YouTube. I think you can watch it on YouTube also. You have to correct me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, I'm not good at giving out free commercials, but maybe I just did. Um, you can watch this program. It's been out. It was released in May, the second season. So you've had about two months to catch up on the second season. I am going because I am a very considerate person, and I am not trying to ruin anybody's day. I will do a very good job right now of not spoiling any of the plot, but I'm going to give you some analysis of this program, overview type analysis without ruining anything. If you don't know what FAUDA is, it's spelled F-A-U-D-A. It's the Arabic world for... Oh, Arabic word for snafu, everything is screwed up, bad, chaotic situation. It's, it's got a lot of definitions, but I think you get the idea, especially when you're talking about a counterterrorism operation. When a counterterrorism operation goes forward, that means it's really failed, it's in a dangerous situation, it's collapsing, get out, abort, the whole thing. Uh, and, you know, there's some very interesting things that you can learn from the show. First off, it's very, very popular. Netflix is going to want to create as many seasons of the show as possible. I have to feel that way, or at least continue their relationship with Leo Raz and his partner who have been uh, producing this show. Leo Raz was a former um, Israeli army, uh, a soldier in the Israeli army and a member of, a, of an elite unit. He came to the United States to be a bodyguard actually for Arnold Schwarzenegger and his family. But he was always interested in drama, came back to Israel, did some dramatic training, had been in some productions, and then finally launched this show on his own. Um, it's a gut-wrenching show to watch. This is not for children. Let me make that very clear right now. It is not for kids. It has violence. It has very intense situations, some very disturbing images, so it's not good on that scale. I think you have to watch it on YouTube if you want to hear it in Hebrew. Uh, when I watch it on Netflix, I get it dubbed in English with Arabic spoken regularly, but with subtitles to explain the Arabic. And by the way, I'm learning a lot of Arabic by watching this show. I'd rather learn a little bit more Hebrew. Um, when I watch the t TV show Screw Game, which has been off the air for a while, but you can get it on the Amazon Fire Stick, which is another show I highly recommend, uh, I learned a lot of Hebrew. I mean, I should say relearned. I was, I was basically fluent in Hebrew when I graduated the uh, Yeshiva of Flatbush in 1988. It, it's been fading on me ever since, uh, but I really had some, uh, a good brushing up when I was watching Screw Game. Anyway, so, but the show is, is disturbing in many, many ways, and it's tough to watch. Um, what's good about the show? It's intense. It's action-packed. Uh, again, not a spoiler alert here. When the unit, the counterterrorism unit, which is the, the focal point of the show, 
the Israeli counterterrorism unit goes out on an operation, uh, there isn't a lot of buildup. They just go. <laughs> you know, they come into the and, and it's time to go out on this operation. So there's a tremendous buildup to how their overall um, uh, target is going to be reached. That they have plenty of buildup. So it's not like plots you know, get completely resolved in every episode. There were 12 episodes in the second season, by the way, 12 episodes of about 40 minutes each. But there are uh, so so there is a there is a, a a climax to be reached here. I'm not saying every episode is its own encapsulated thing. But when they go, when the action scenes though there isn't you don't have to wait. There's plenty, there's so much action in every show, and uh, and also that's why you know and there's, that's popular. It's it's shot really well. Um, they they it has a nice crisp picture to it. There's again the the camera moves, the actors move, the dialogue is is pretty rough but good and you know tough to hear but good, um, a bit well done I should say. So all those things are going really well, but there's some things that I just wanted to to note about the show that are very interesting that I've noticed. First off, you know there is, for my taste, a little too much of uh, a a balance made between the Israeli and the Palestinian side. You know the counterterrorism unit and the bad guy Palestinian terrorists. It's pretty clear who the good guys and the bad guys are. I don't want to pretend that they're blurring that line. I don't really think they're blurring that line, but they do blur the line on tactics. Again, no spoilers there. That's all I'm going to say about that. But that it goes a little too far, in my opinion, not because it doesn't make for good TV, just because maybe that might make you feel a little uncomfortable to believe that a counterterrorism unit does this every once in a while. Um, and we can get into a long discussion about when it's justified and when it isn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But some people might be disturbed by that. Another really interesting thing that's going on in the show that really, really, really hits me. And again, this is a, not a spoiler alert because they are not the uh, the terrorists in the show. But there is a very favorable portrayal on the show of the Palestinian Authority. Extremely favorable. Uh, I have a couple of theories about that. One is, I think they're really trying to put the, 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 the spotlight on Hamas in a negative way and the spotlight on another Arab terrorist organization that I will not name because that would be a spoiler alert. And like I said, I'm extremely considerate about that. So I'm not going to tell you the other Arab terrorist uh, organization that kind of makes a little bit of an appearance in the show. I won't do that. But um, anyway, uh, the Palestinian Authority is really, really well portrayed in the show. And, uh, you know, look, that could be construed as being misleading. The Palestinian Authority has been, in general, really, really unhelpful in getting the peace process moving along and improving the lives of their own people. We know all of this from, from our years of reading the headlines and understanding the news. We get it. However, I think that the Palestinian Authority, based on the locations that the, the Shvauda show is, is filming, it's at, I think that the Palestinian Authority is probably being very cooperative in the production of this show. Not only in the filming locations, but probably in providing some of the Arab actors on the show. Because there are Arab and Israeli actors working on the show together, which is really interesting. And by the way, when you watch the show, it's really hard to tell who's who. I mean, you can tell how they can make Israelis look like... Arab Palestinians and they can make Palestinians look like Israelis. Of course, that isn't sometimes that's not hard to do, period. But it's for certain types of Israelis, <laughs> the, the lines get blurred as far as that physical appearance. Uh, the Arabic spoken on the show is just fantastically done by all the Israelis. You know, you wouldn't know about it. And by the way, it's so well done that there have been many reports, credible reports, that Palestinians are really big fans of the show, too. And I think some of that comes from the fact that they are not portrayed as negatively as they may have expected to have been portrayed by the show. There are a lot of good guy Palestinians in the show. Again, a lot of them from the Palestinian Authority, and that's interesting. Uh, and there was another character they introduced this season who was you know, basically like a civilian who is portrayed positively. So that was very interesting. Um, 
but uh, again, it's I have a feeling that the Palestinian Authority is cooperating with the show, allowing it to be produced, not fighting it, giving it a, a chance to roll. And I think because of that, I think the producers of the show have decided, let's make Hamas the bad guys, another terrorist, other terrorist groups, bad guys and see where that goes. So, again, it's it's good TV watching, not for children, um, not for faint of heart adults, but it's it's a, it's just an exciting show and another example of how Israeli TV and and film the film industry both of them have really improved. I'm going to be really brutally honest here. I think until very recently the Israeli filmed as you know screen type productions whether it was for television or for movies were in general not very good. They just weren't very good. They had all the typical trappings of what mostly socialist countries produce when it comes to film and TV. They're all too long. You know, the reason why French films and some of these other socialist country films are so long has nothing to do with the art. The reason is they get paid by the hour. And when they, when they present a bill to the government artistic film industry for their hour shooting, if they did 500 hours of shooting and they only produce an 80-minute movie, there's going to be a problem. Like, hey, wait a minute. You know, hey, Francois, how did you... Why did you do 500 hours for shooting for only any even if I mean, that's exactly what's going to happen. So they, they make these movies ridiculously long so they can collect a bigger paycheck. OK, which has nothing to do with the art. And the Israelis were following that kind of a path for a long time. But in recent years, because of streaming media organizations like Netflix that picked up Israeli shows because of the success of the show Homeland, which was based on an t- Israeli television show, the Israelis now are creating television programs for an American audience in mind, with, 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 with at least them, them in mind. I don't mean like necessarily trying to win over this audience, but with the understanding of, OK, here's how American television shows and movies are blocked. Here's the pace of our shows. Here's how it works. And because of that, they're creating better programs. So I just like that show. It's a good show. It's not my favorite Israel. I, I don't like it as much as Srugim, which is not a political show at all. It has some political connotations to it, but not many. But it's a totally different type of show. Srugim has been long off the air anyway. It's, I think, six years since they wrapped on their final episode. So Fauda, which I think should have a future, or at least Leo Raz, who's the main, the, the, the star and the creator of that show, co-creator of that show, I think, has a future. So keep your eye out for that. And, and just think about some of the things that I said about the show before you jump in fully, uh, if you haven't already seen it. I, I want to stick with the, with the media for a second for my last segment, and that here on the Nachum Siegel Show. Again, this is Jake Novak on the Novak Now. I'm, this is not the Nachum Siegel Show. This is the Nachum Siegel Network. Sorry, Nachum. This is the Novak Now program, the live Novak Now program. I'm your host, Jake Novak. Again, follow me on Twitter, at JakeJakeNY, if you've liked any of these conversations or any of the things I've talked about. I do post about them regularly, so you can stay informed. Uh, and you can trust me as a reliable source. And if I ever do make a mistake or quote something that isn't real, I'll let you know. So far, I'm, I'm doing very well on that. My only mistakes on social media are usually an inappropriate joke or two, which I have avoided for many years now. So usually that's my only sin on social media. That's about it. I don't post uh, fake stuff. Um, but I, I want to talk about the news media just for a second one more time, because I, I talked for the last two editions of Novak Now about the immigration issue at the border. I don't want to go through all the issues. I don't want to talk about all the instances again. But what I, I do want to say something, a very important lesson that I would hope a lot of us would start to take away from this. You know, probably almost everyone listening to this show right now is more than aware of the more than 40 years of unfavorable coverage of Israel by the news media, the Western news media, especially in Europe, but also in the United States. We're aware of it. We've been hearing about it. I, I remember first hearing about it and really getting a, an analysis of it in, in sixth grade. So that we're talking about 1981 here. So for me, it's a 37-year-long thing I've been aware of. For many of you, I'm sure it's longer. Um, 
And there's never been a time where we haven't, where this hasn't been front of mind. And one of the things that, you know, you really have to understand, you can't just say, oh, the news media isn't favorable to Israel and, and, and close the book. No, you need to show examples and, and show some of the tactics that are used to, to skew the story. And there are a lot of tactics. I think the most powerful tactics are the ones where we show pictures and video that's cut or edited in a certain way that really accentuates the emotion, elicits people's anger more than anything else. And that is the way that you, you win people over. This is the way that you win people over in politics. For, for the many of you listening, and I get this all the time from people saying, no, when it comes to politics and the news, I only look at the facts, I assess the pros and cons, and that's how I come to my realization. I want to say something to you, and I mean no offense to anybody listening. I don't care if you're Albert Einstein. I don't care if you're the greatest philosopher in the world. I don't care if you're the greatest rabbi in the world. We are human beings, and human beings make our decisions based on emotion. Now, does that mean that we're hopeless emotional nutcases? No. What that means is that for most of us, or at least a decent amount of us who are emotionally stable, our emotions are decently in line with the facts. Okay? And the best example I can give you for those of you who, who may not be following me is when I'm talking about how you decide to get married to someone. Now, obviously, there's a lot of emotion involved here. Please don't tell me there's no emotion involved. For those of you who are listening who had an arranged marriage with no emotion, I'm going to argue that there was emotion there because your emotional connection to your parents and your community encourage you to, to take an arranged marriage. I don't think there's a lot of people listening who had an arranged marriage, but in case you're one of those people, don't think emotions don't have anything to do with that. They did, okay? But for the rest of us who, who got married in, in a more romantic setting or whatever you want to, any word you want to use, obviously our emotions played a role. But our emotions were tempered, hopefully, by some of the facts. But again, emotion is what triggers us, especially when it comes to political stuff, and especially when you see people acting in an emotional way. When you see people screaming about the border, when you see people screaming about Israel, emotion begets emotion, okay? You don't necessarily look at cold data and then react emotionally. Usually you try to process, this, process, it, process it a little bit, okay? Emotion elicits emotion. And that's what the news media does when it comes to Israel. They show pictures of people screaming. They show people uh, pictures of victims. Some, and, and, and as we often learn, the victims aren't even from Israel. It's like from some kind of Bosnian situation. The, the, the news media on several occasions has used pictures of victims of, from, from the Bos Serbia-Bosnia uh, war and pretended that this was Israeli uh, atrocities. Uh, this has happened a lot. So, so I just want you to remember that. This is what works for us. And it, for those of you who think that you're above emotional reactions, that you've chosen who to vote for based on cold, hard facts all the time, I want you to start reading a little bit more about how the human brain works and how humanity has survived. Humanity has survived by being emotional because in many cases, especially in the times of pre-civilized human, humanity, our emotional fears of threats from other humans or threats from wild animals is, what's kept, is what kept, kept us alive. So in our DNA is a very strong devotion to emotion, to emotion, especially when it comes to fear. Okay, Fear of something that might get us. We're going to be better safe than sorry, even though the data shows there's no, the chances that our plane is going to crash are much, much smaller than the car. But when you drive to the airport, you're not nervous. When you get on the plane, you're nervous. From a data point of view, from a statistical point of view, that makes very little sense. But that's what all of us do, okay? or almost all of us do. So don't forget that you are an emotional creature. And I'm not trying to put anybody down, but that's just the way it goes. Now, I want you to ask yourself, because we're just wrapping up here with a couple minutes left here on the Novak Now Show on the Nuffin Siegel Network. After all your years of following the way that the news media slants and uses emotion to, to, to pit, pit, you know, tip the scales against Israel, have you fallen victim to yourself, 
not to the anti-Israel stuff, because you've been educated about it, but have you fallen victim yourself to the, when the news media uses the same tactic, tactics in another story? And I'm going to give you a list of stories that you may have been hoodwinked by because they use the same tactics. Of course, this immigration story, this immigration story at the border with the same kinds of pathetic pictures, the same sound, the same lack of any true background and the real arguments on either side. You might have been hoodwinked by that. And based on my social media feed, I know a lot of my friends who are extremely pro-Israel who have been hoodwinked completely by this immigration story. How about the gun control story? Been hoodwinked by that? Have you been hoodwinked and fooled into believing the gun is the problem and not the bad guy? When was the last time when we talk about Palestinian terror in Israel that we started to discuss how terrible it is that they have rocks? That's really not the issue. We know it's about what, how they're educated. We know about how it's, it's, it's the... It's the rhetoric that's in their minds. We know we know that. How about the economy? Have you been hoodwinked into believing certain stories about the economy are true or, or, or opinions about the economy are true because of what you've seen on television and not what you've seen in, in your own, because you've never actually seen it with your own two eyes. You've only seen it through a camera. So I want you to think about those things because, and it's not all liberal conservative stuff. I'm not just trying to say everything conservative is right and everything liberal is wrong. But understand that similar tactics are used in so many other stories to get an emotional reaction and to avoid reality. It's not just Israel. Please don't turn off the excellent monitors you have, the excellent sensors you have, when a story isn't about Israel, because the same tactics are being used. Again, this has been the live Novak Now program on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll be back with you next week. I'm Jake Novak. Follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY. And please, be your best monitor. When it comes to the stuff that you see on the news, you have to be the one who decides whether it's true or not. I'll speak, I'll speak to you next week. Thank you. Mm -hmm.